Good morning. I try and preach with my notes off of the iPad today. I had a panic when I was driving here. I thought I'd picked up Louise's iPad. <laughs> First time, I think, ever I've never printed off my notes. There we go. So, we PowerPoint presentation. I've been thinking a lot and praying a lot about the role of a father. So, I've got some pictures to show you here. This is a picture of my family when I was a wee boy. Can you guess which one's me? The littlest one. Yeah, that's me. Now, it wasn't until I met my wife that something was pointing out to me. I never, ever noticed this before when I was showing Louise all the kind of old family pictures. She says, your mum used to dress you in a family uniform. What a load of nonsense, we did not. She says, well, let's look at all the pictures. There's the blue uniform. All three brothers the same. There's the white uniform, <laughs> the blue shorts. All three brothers the same. Here's the beige day. <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness. What, what did my mother do us? I don't know what the purpose was about all that. Well, well, I'll speak to my mother over lunch today as to why she dressed us all the same whenever we went anywhere. I don't know. Um, and for a wee while, I felt bad about it. I thought, oh my goodness. You know, Lise thinks it's hilarious. She laughs every time the pictures come out. She can't stop laughing. Tears will come down her, her cheeks and everything. And I thought, oh, did people laugh at us when I was young? And I thought, Let's, I'm going to do a wee internet search to see if other families did this kind of thing. And I actually felt a lot better <laughs> after doing a wee internet search. Here's some of the family's uniforms that I found. <laughs> Thank you, Mum, for never putting us in these. <laughs> and then we get to some themes. The pink theme. The 80s were not kind, were they? There's <laughs> the pink team. I think I've got the blue team now. <laughs> Hopefully they're from Hawaii. They're all Hawaiian shirts. The red team. In fact, there's a lot of red teams. Check these guys out. <laughs> and then here's their cousins. <laughs> I can't tell if they're wearing that couch at the same time. It's difficult to tell, isn't it? Uh, and if you can't pick a color, wear all the colors. More than one. <laughs> Here's one of my personal favorites. Where's Wally? <laughs> and for those of you that love football, this is the Where's Wally team in their away strip. family, you got to love it. That's my family. No uniform. Just clothed with love. That's us. Family, it's a funny, peculiar thing when you think about it. But the role of the father is so important. So today we're looking at Romans chapter 8, reading from verse 14. 
to verse 17. Some of, I think, the most powerful words in Scripture. If you let these words absorb into your soul, my goodness, it's life-changing. So Romans chapter 8, reading from verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Amen. What powerful words. What powerful, powerful words. We are the children of God. The children of Almighty God. You are a child of God. Do you know that? Do you live like that? Do you feel it? Let's talk about some of the implications here of being a child of God and being adopted into his family. Of course, adoption has been something that's been of particular interest in our family. But the word here for adoption to sonship, the word that is used in the original passage here, the Aramaic word for sonship is the term that is used for a son who has been brought into the family but is given full rights as an heir to the father's inheritance. Not shoehorned into the family, but a full son. That's important. It's really important because in a, in a household back in those days, slaves had no authority. They were part of the household. They were provided for by the household, but they had no authority. But the sons did. The sons had authority. Their identity came from their father. And they had the father's authority to do things, to instruct, to instruct and to represent the family, etc. We have those same rights as an adopted child of God. Our identity comes from our Heavenly Father, the Father who is the Father to the fatherless. As Stuart was pointing out earlier, my goodness, what a wonderful work that is that the Watuto Choir do. Our Heavenly Father is the Father to the fatherless. He is your Father. This is an amazing journey through Scripture when you think about it. You go back to Genesis and God speaks from heaven. It's very distant, but He has pursued us all the way through Scripture. He's no longer the, the Father who speaks just from heaven. He moved from there to being visible on a mountaintop as He spoke to Moses. He then went and He was visible to the nation of Israel in the tabernacle in the tent of the presence. He was then resident in the temple in Jerusalem, right in the, 
the capital, the heart of the, the city of his people. And then as we move into the New Testament, God comes to earth in human form. He pursues the lost. I will stand in the gap. I will make a way for my children to be with me. I will pay the price for their sin. There'll be no barrier between us. I will remove all barriers. I will be the sacrifice. And Jesus rose gloriously from the dead, conquered death for us. And then, Pentecost, God sends his very own Holy Spirit, promised to us the power to live, the power to live well, the power to live for him. And he sends it. And he says, I will pour it out onto all my people. And then, Romans chapter 8, I will adopt you into my family. You are my child. Everything that I have is yours. When my time on this planet, Earth, and I'm only visiting this planet, when my time on this planet is over, and my wife's too, I hope it's not too soon, but my children will inherit everything that I've got. Everything that is mine will become theirs. And to an extent, what I have just now is already theirs. My home is their home. My bank account is definitely their bank account. <laughs> and my lack of sleep is their lack of sleep. <laughs> but everything I have is theirs. It's theirs. I'm, I'm looking to provide for them. They look to me to provide for them. They look to me for love and for care and for nurture and for shelter and to teach them how to live in this world. Everything I have is theirs. But think of the heavenly spiritual application of that for us as children of God. We're inheriting the kingdom of God. That is our inheritance. Eternity and paradise and the place where the angels sing the praises of God continually without ceasing in a place that is perfect. My goodness, can you see it? Do you want it? Do you want to inherit that? Well, good news is yours. It is yours. It is yours because you are a child of God and this is your inheritance. There's so much that I could refer to about my own children and just reflecting on the role of a father and, wow, the role of God as, as my father. One thing that's hit me since we became parents on the 3rd of January, so many people have said to me when I've been on one, so many people have said to Louise and I, oh, these children are so lucky to have you as your parents. And when I've been working uh, in my professional field, people say, oh, they're so lucky to have you as a father. You know, you've got all the skill set. You, you help children overcome traumas and, and you, you know how to, to, to nurture and bring the best out of children. And that's great. And I do have that skill set. But I'm also entirely flawed as a father. Just ask my wife for a list of flaws. You'll be here all day. <laughs> Ask my mother and she'll say nothing because she thinks her son's brilliant. 
But I am entirely flawed. I am human. And I will make mistakes. And I make mistakes every single day. But how lucky are we? How lucky are you that God is your heavenly father? How lucky are you? Has fortune not smiled on you? That your father is the creator of heaven and earth. He who can do all things, who created life, who created love and laughter, who parted the Red Sea, who provided for two million Israelites in the desert for 40 years, the one who brought down the walls of Jericho and built up the walls of Jerusalem is your father. The one who conquered death is your father. The one who heals the sick makes the blind see and the lame walk, the deaf hear, who can calm a storm. He is your father. The one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills is your father, God Almighty. And nothing is impossible for him. And you are his, and he is yours. What a great family. What a great, great family. Hallelujah. (laughs) That is our family. Two things I want to share. The opening statement here in this passage in Romans, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Let's look at that as a challenge and as a spiritual checkup this morning. Are you being led by the Spirit of God? Because you are a child of God. And the Spirit of God should be an everyday present part of your life. And from that comes great fruit. What is the fruit in your life right now? What is God doing through you right now? I am confident enough to say this morning that I am a child of God. And I believe that I am led by the Spirit of God. I say that not to boast, I say that to encourage. We're all in the same boat. We are all the same. You're my brother, you're my sister. We have the same Heavenly Father. We are all the same. It's His Spirit that makes the difference. Are you making enough space in your life for His Spirit to work through you? Is a question I'm asking. I tend to find in my own walk that when I'm being led by the Spirit of God, it's usually when he's asked me to do something I don't particularly want to do. That's how I definitely know it's not me because I'd rather do this than do that. But God's asked me to do that. But I want to do this. I think of my own kids. Well, you won't put your shoes on. But I want to play. <laughs> no, you need to put your shoes on. We're going out. Ah, but I've got a new tractor I want to run about with on the floor. I've got a balloon, Daddy. I've got a balloon. You need to put your shoes on. We're going out. Just over a year ago, one of the last times I preached, I talked about uh, going to Schott's prison and, and feeling called to go and do that work. And um, as I was there and I was speaking, really believe the Spirit of God spoke to me to say, there's three men here I want you to work with. It's him and it's him and it's him. As I'm talking and I'm praying at the same time, Lord, if that's really you, I've not got the time to go and visit guys in prison. I've not. But if it's really you, these guys will need to come and speak to me and ask for me to go and visit them one-to-one. And lo and behold, at the end of that session, one, two, three, these are the three guys that come up and speak to me and said, 
uh, really buying into what you're saying, I really would value one-to-one time with you. I want to explore this whole God thing. Awesome. Two weeks ago, I was back in prison. It doesn't sound good when you say that, does it? <laughs> yeah, it was two weeks ago, I was back in prison. Um, and I have to say a big thank you to uh, uh, Keith and Ann Poynton. They've got a lot of experience in this area. And just after I got started in this area, I was privileged enough to have well, dinner at the house and lunch with them one day. And I was asking them, what, what can you tell me? What can you teach me about your time and, and working with people in prison? And I said, really, you have to be praying for the Lord to call someone who's in the prison to become a pastor. I said, right, I'm going to pray for that. And I did. I've prayed and prayed and prayed. Two weeks ago, one of the guys that I've been working with, and I haven't seen him um, for, I took uh, three months off, December to March, because of other things that were happening in my life. I hadn't seen him for three months, but I'd been seeing him every six weeks. So I was getting the, the update from him. This is a guy who made a decision to put his trust in Jesus. A guy with a history of violence, a very, very broken life. I said, how are you getting on? He says, wait till I tell you this. Wait till I tell you this, he says. Ever since you challenged me to put my faith in God, I've been praying every day, and I'm now telling everybody that my prayers are being answered. I'm no longer, no longer a violent man. If somebody bumped into me in the canteen, that would be the start of a fight, a rami. I'd be in trouble. When somebody bumps into me in the canteen now, I say, sorry, that was my fault. Can I sit with you today? And he said, I'll sit down with them and I'll tell them, do you know that God answers prayers? And he would speak to them. This is a guy that no longer is on a drug program. He's no longer taking antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication. He's a guy that can sleep at night now for the first time in his whole life have a full night's sleep, which is awesome. He said, I've never moved my prison cell since I asked God into my life, whereas every few weeks to move his prison cell could be fighting with everybody on his corridor, and they had to move him, Mr. Violence. He said, I haven't been moved since I invited God into my life. I am a changed man. And now I've got other guys stopping taking drugs in prison. Do you know they take drugs in prison? Wow. He said, I've got other guys, I'm telling other guys, and I'm teaching them the things you've taught me, and I'm telling them, pray, man, you've got to pray, because you can't do this on your own. You can only do it in God's strength. And so now, not only has his life changed, his relationships, his family's changed, he's writing to his kids, um, he's writing to his um, brothers and sisters, etc., and they're all writing back to say, you've changed. Wow, you're talking positively for the first time. You're talking about the future. This is amazing. They're starting to call each other regularly. This is a changed man. And all because I was led by the Spirit of God. God did all of that. But he chooses to work through us. He doesn't just zap people there and there. Led by the Spirit of God. I don't have time for that, God. But if you're asking me, I'll do it. Just like Stuart Jean going out to Uganda. Wow, it's a big ask. But when you take on what God's saying. Now, the one thing that I really thought about as a father is, and I've reflected on this a lot, 
What pleases me as a father? Because I want to know what pleases God as a father. I've thought about that a lot. And there's a lot of things I, I love about being a father. Big, big list. I won't go through it all. I love to see my kids happy and they're, they're having a great time and they're laughing, etc. I love it when I walk in the door when I've been out working and they shout, Daddy! <laughs> and as it says in the passage here, they cry, Abba, which is the Aramaic for Daddy. I get a reminder every time I come home from work, Daddy! When was the last time you were so excited to be in your father's presence? My kids run to me, they jump into my arms, Daddy's home! It's great. Do you run into church this morning going, I'm in Daddy's home! Daddy! Why not? Why not? This is your dad's house. You're in your dad's house. It's great. What pleases me? There's a whole lot of things. I love to see my kids having fun. We have great fun. We, we like to laugh. We like to kid around. Uh, I love to chase them. I love to hear their giggles and all this kind of thing. But actually, deep down, what really pleases me most is when my children are obedient. Not because it gives me a power trip or I'm in control. Not at all. What really makes me excited about them being obedient is I've got the plan for their day, for their year, for their life, where I know that if they follow my instructions, it's the best thing for them. Like this morning, will you put your shoes on, please? I've got a balloon! <laughs> but you need to put your shoes on just now, because I know you need to get your shoes on, so you need to go to church, so we're there together as a family. But I've got a balloon. You know, they're all sidetracked with that, but if they're obedient, I know the day is going to go smoothly. If they're obedient with the please and the thank you, if they're obedient with the get excited about school and all this kind of stuff, it makes their life better. God has the plan for your life. Your heavenly Father has the plan for your life. He knows what's best for you because He created you for that life, for that purpose. He created you for it. He sees the whole plan, the whole purpose, and he wants you to be obedient. Stephen, I want you to work with these three guys in prison. I've not got time for that. I want you to do it. And now there's a guy who's acting as a pastor in the prison. I won't speak with the other two. I've not got enough time to speak with the other two guys, but great things are happening. What pleases God? And I was praying about this and praying about this, and this is the passage that came to me. It's in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 3. Let me unfold this a little bit for you. Our obedience to God is so important. In Nehemiah chapter 3, the whole story of Nehemiah is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, to give you the background, for 150 years, the city of Jerusalem has been in ruins. The Babylons took over, and just as a kind of mark of dominance, they put the city into ruins. They knocked down the temple, they knocked down all the buildings, and they reduced the walls down to rubble, or half height with big holes in it and all this kind of stuff. A terrible, terrible blight on the life of Israel powerless, overrun by their enemies, 
and their city in ruins, Jerusalem in ruins. And one day, an Israelite living in the Babylonian palace, he's the cupbearer to the king, a very trusted position. Actually, out of all the Israelites, he's probably got one of the cushiest jobs where he lives in the palace. He's got a lot of authority from the king. He'll be running a whole lot of stuff. He'll have a very good life. But one day the Spirit of God comes upon him and he weeps for Jerusalem. God put this in his heart, this child of God. God's Spirit made him weep for Jerusalem. And he went in to give the king his wine one day. And the king basically said, what's up with your face? He said, I cannot be happy. He said, I've never seen you unhappy before. He said, I cannot be happy when my people's city, my God's city lies in ruins. And then the king, the Babylonian king says to them, what can I do to help? And Nehemiah prays in that moment, seeking his father's will. What do I say, father? There's a door just opened. What do you want me to say? And he says, let me go and rebuild the city. And the king says, okie dokie, let's do that. I will place you as governor of Judah. I will give you all the resources that you need. Financially, this is my province, Judah. Let's go and do this. Now, the, the walls of Jerusalem were in ruins for 150 years. Let's go to Jeremiah, cha- no, Jeremiah. Nehemiah chapter 3. Reading from verse 28, Nehemiah 3, verse 28. Nehemiah, just before this, had spoken to the people of Israel. Some people had returned to the city, basically a handful compared to what the city was like before. He spoke to them and he spoke to the Israelites that were scattered around about and said, this is God's time for us to rebuild our city, our holy city. God's saying it's now. And so people rise up with them and they go back and they go to Jerusalem. Even amongst a whole lot of opposition where the enemies are round about them, they all decide to go and build. Nehemiah says, we'll rebuild the walls, we'll fortify the city. And so the guys are building with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other because they're right in the enemy's camp. There are three other nation is right round about Jerusalem who are wanting to go in and thinking, right, we don't want to see the Israelites raised up again. Let's go in there and get rid of them. So they're building with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. It says when they go and fetch water, there's guys go with spears with them to protect the guys just in case they get attacked. How did they rebuild the walls? Here we go, verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to him, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shekaniah, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshalem, son of Berak, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Basically, everybody worked on the bit of the wall outside their own house. And let me take you to Nehemiah chapter 6, reading from verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul 
in 52 days. 52 days. I'm going to keep saying that. 52 days. This is important. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. I've got some experience of building walls. Ten years ago, just over ten years ago, my two brothers and I, we, we started building houses. We bought farmsteadings, buildings that were 150 years old and run down, and this is one of the walls that we had to rebuild. In fact, we had on this site uh, ten, 10 houses that were all stone, and I worked out last night, we had 280 meters of stone wall to build up. So here we are, looks a bit of a humpty wall, doesn't it? <laughs> but here we go. I had a team of eight stonemasons working on this. Eight skilled guys. But the stonemasons alone are not enough to get the job done. We'd have joiners there as well who would build formwork and temporary structures to support the stones that's going in place. On top of that, you can't just build a wall with stonemasons and joiners. We have to put up things like scaffolding, big temporary structures so that we can get up and access into places. We had to order materials for all of this. Had to source, our stone came from Yorkshire to match the stone for these walls. The lime mortar, we imported it from Portugal because it's the best lime mortar in the area, but it's really the only one that's particularly good. The other ones have got too much cement in them. I want to go into too much detail here. But all these materials, and we had to order. When I ordered the stuff from Portugal, it took a month to get here on a boat. A month. But eventually, after 18 months, we built 280 meters of walls and built beautiful things like those houses and those houses and those houses. 18 months of a lot of money, a lot of organization, a lot of skilled guys, 18 months to build 280 meters of stone walls. The walls of Jerusalem are 4,100 meters long, 4.1 kilometers long, two and a half miles long. They're 12 meters high on average, which is 40 feet in all change. Is that right, Robert? 40 feet? Aye, roughly, roughly, yeah, roughly, roughly. <laughs> 40 feet high and two and a half meters thick, which is eight foot thick. Walls I built were... Um, they were a foot thick, 0.3 meters. And the tallest point I worked out was nine meters tall, and that was the big, the big peak that way. That's nine meters tall, but most of it was, like that section there, mostly was three meters tall. 18 months it took us to build that at a cost of about half a million pounds. It's a lot of money. God accomplished four kilometers of walls in 52 days. 52 days. To put that in comparison, the Ottoman Empire, a thousand years later, the Ottoman Empire took over Jerusalem after the Crusades, and again, the walls were down, they were in ruins again. It took them four years and that was one of the main focuses of the whole Ottoman Empire. Four years to rebuild those walls. God did it in 52 days. 
52 days compared to four years, which is what? 1,300 days, 1,400 days. God did it in 52 days, a miracle. How did God accomplish that? Because he asked every single one of his children to do their bit. What's just in front of your house? I want you to work on that. I want you to work on that bit. I love the, the phrase, bit. When I was growing up, I don't know if it's a Broxburn term or not, but my bit was where I lived. Let's play after school. You coming to my bit or am I going to your bit? Is that just a Broxburn term or is it a West Lothian term? My bit. You coming to my bit? No, I'm going to go to your bit. God asked each one of his children to do his bit. The bit outside his house. The priests did it. The goldsmiths did it. Everybody did it. Everybody contributed. This was God's time, his timing. The people of Israel contributed three tons of gold and silver, it says in Nehemiah, to fund this work. Three tons of gold and silver. Let's do our bit. I can give this money. Half of the money was given by the kind of nobles, the heads of the houses, and the other half was by the ordinary people who all contributed. They all did their bit. When we respond in obedience to God, when we please our Heavenly Father with obedience, when we submit to His plan, when we step out and take action on what He's asking us to do, when we fulfill the purpose that He created us for, miraculous things happen. And as you read on in Nehemiah, what was the fruit of rebuilding these walls? It says that 42,360 of God's people returned to Jerusalem. It name, num, numbers them, it names them for some sections, but numbers them. 42,360 people returned to Jerusalem because hundreds, if not thousands, of God's people responded to God's call to say, I want you to do your bit. So I want you to focus on, for 150 years, these walls laid in ruin. The nation of Israel who were offended by this and motivated, they wanted to rebuild it. For 150 years, they said, it's impossible. It's impossible. We don't have the resources. It's impossible because the enemy will attack and they'll wipe us out. But when God said, now's the time, now's the time, give the resources. Even got the king of Babylon to put resources into it. Doesn't matter about the enemy, hold a sword in one hand or a spear and a trowel in the other because we're doing this. And they did. They did their bit. That's all they did. They didn't have to think about how we're going to do four kilometers, how we're going to do two and a half miles didn't matter. You should do your bit. I'm asking you to do this wee bit here. You should do that. So they did. Everybody did the bit outside their house. And it was done. And the fruit was tremendous. Jerusalem was restored. And even through the whole process, through the whole process, the society was restored. Because Nehemiah looked after the poor and the fatherless and the widowed, and the vulnerable, and the oppressed. He got the noblemen to cancel debts 
Don't ask anybody to repay you. This is God's timing. We're all in this together. We are all God's children. And they responded by doing their bit. I find it really interesting that the man he chose to do it was a man who was comfortable where he was, 200 miles away, living a life of luxury in the palace under the king's protection, with the king's authority, to run things as he sees fit. It wasn't his problem until God said, Nehemiah, I'm choosing you. What if Nehemiah said, actually, maybe it'd be better if you went with the Levites, you really like the Levites, just go with one of them. No, Nehemiah, it's you. You're in the position because I put you there. And now I'm going to work through that position. I'm going to get the king of Babylon on board with this. He's going to pay for the timber. It says that in the book. Why are we going through this just now? This is the point. And this is what I want you to take from this. God has a plan for Whitburn. You happy about that? You excited about that? God has a plan to bring about his kingdom in Whitburn. God has a plan for this church. God has a plan for your life. Scripture tells us so. Your father is asking you to do your bit, to listen to the prompting of his Holy Spirit and do whatever he's asking you to do. The small stuff, the big stuff. Sometimes we think, I'm not going to listen too hard because he's going to ask me to do something big. I'm not equipped for that. Nonsense. He'll ask you for the stuff he's equipped you for, the small stuff. Just do your bit, the bit outside your house. The SLT, the senior leadership team here, have been um, investing time and into looking into growing church in the back of Stevie's sabbatical. Uh, we're doing some teaching, some learning, and it's been fantastic. And one of the books we're reading just now, where it says, when we're reading from people who have grown churches, this jumped out at me big time. It says, God has already put into your church the people, the resources, and the gifting required to bring about the kingdom in your community. I don't know if you agree with that or not, that God has put together the people, the resources, the plan, the gifting to bring about his kingdom in Whitburn. I believe he has. Together with his Holy Spirit, because for us, for our father, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible for our dad. And we are his, we're his children, we're in his household. Nothing is impossible for him. And I believe tremendous things are about to happen in Whitburn. I believe tremendous things are about to happen in and through this church. And I believe tremendous things are about to happen in your life when you fully decide, I'm going to please my father. I'm going to be obedient. And I'm going to do whatever he asked me to do because that's why I was made. Amen.